Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Matthew, chapter 2. Thank you, uh, Gabby and Jonathan, for reading our scripture passage this morning. Thank you to our music team and leading us in worship and song with our Christmas songs and hymns and carols. The passage we have this morning is Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. It's the less popular Christmas story. You may have even noticed in the songs that we sang, it's all talking about the angels, the shepherds. It's, it's all talking about the night Jesus was born. Many of them talk about the specific time and the events surrounding uh, Jesus' birth found in Luke chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2 has a different angle, different touch. Um, not a different story, just a different, different part of the story. A part that Matthew chose to hone in on and leave out the part with the shepherds and the angels. And this is the story of the wise men, the magi from the east, coming to meet Jesus. Let's read Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. We'll read down to the end of verse 12. This is a greater story. Chapter 2 is actually the whole story. We're just reading a portion of the wise men account. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 2, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, They saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Would you just bow with me and, and pray one more time this morning? Father, we... We again echo what Pastor Sam had said, where this is just an unusual, different, unnormal Christmas. This is not what the Christmases of the past have been for us. And yet we come back to the same story that has not changed for 2,000 years. And though our lives, our current context, our, our situation may be different than it was a year ago, we can go back to the same old story and find the same comforting truths and be nourished and fed by your word. We thank you for Christmas. 
We thank you for the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray that as we come to your word this morning that you would help us to see more clearly, help us to understand more fully, and help us to worship more completely. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Matthew began his gospel account by giving a genealogy, those really fun things that we skip over in Numbers. Remember all those uh, specific, you know, it basically just ran through. This guy had this son, had this son, had this son. Matthew does his own version, and he tracks from Abraham to David, from David to the exile in Babylon, and from Babylon down to Jesus. And then he moves to the story of Joseph getting the, the, the dream, having Uh, An angel come to him in the dream saying, Joseph, Mary's going to have a baby and and I know you're talking, you're thinking about divorcing her quietly, but but don't worry, God has everything under control. You take her as your wife and you raise this child as if he were your own because this boy that is going to be born is the savior of the world. Then we pick up in chapter two, verse one, and we've already filled in Luke chapter two into the story of Matthew chapter one. We know that he's born in Bethlehem, but we don't get to that in Matthew's account until chapter 2, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea. That's the first time that it's mentioned in Matthew. We actually have no idea what's really going on. We just know that Joseph has submitted to the will and the word of the Lord in marrying Mary and taking Jesus as his son, and they gave him the name Jesus. And then we begin this whole other story of these magi, these wise men. And I feel like I can, I can say this because last week... Um, Dr. Stan Fowler ruined Away in the Manger. I can, I can ruin We Three Kings um, in a couple of different ways, actually. It doesn't say that there was three of them, right? We, we get the three from the gifts, right? There were three gifts, and we kind of just fit in, oh, there must have been three kings. And they're actually not kings. They're not mentioned as kings. They're talked about as wise men, magi from the east. They're, they're people who majored in astrology. They looked at the stars. They tried to interpret the weather and the winds and the stars. They majored in dream interpretation. They studied ancient sacred writings of all different kinds, not just their own, but they, they were wide read in all sorts of sacred writings. They pers- pursued wisdom. They tried to look really, really smart in front of kings. They pursued magic in some areas. In many ways, these people... We're just like the people that Daniel was around. You know Daniel in the lion's den? There's a greater context of that too. Daniel was one of the wise men of Babylon. When they were taken into exile, Daniel and his three buddies became so famous because God was with them and working through them. They seemed to have tapped in. From the Babylonian perspective, they, have ta- they had tapped in to some higher being. One that the Babylonians didn't know. And these guys, the Magi, the wise men from the east, they were just like all those other guys in in Babylon. They were the wise men. They were trying to look at the stars. They were trying to look at the sacred writings. They were trying to figure out just so that when the king asked, they didn't get their head chopped off. That they had a good answer. These are these kinds of guys. They come from the east. There's a lot of discussion about where did they come from exactly. It could have been Babylon, could have been somewhere else. We're not really told. We're just told that they come from the east during the time of King Herod and they come to Jerusalem. And they ask, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and we have come to worship him. They came to Jerusalem because that's where the kings were. Jerusalem was the royal city. That was the city where the kings ruled from. 
We shouldn't think that the star misled them, that the star, when it rose, kind of hovered over Jerusalem, and then the wise men went there, and the star, whatever that is, it made a mistake. God had made a mistake when he put the star over Jerusalem. That's not what happened. In all likelihood, they saw the star when it rose, and they knew that it was over there. It was over there, towards Jerusalem, towards Bethlehem, and they had read some of those sacred writings. Remember, Matthew has tracked from Abraham to Dan, David, David to the exile, and from exile to Jesus. He's already shown us that the exile is a pretty important part of the story. What happened there is pretty important. And Daniel and his three buddies, Shadrach and Benny, they bring along with them their sacred writings, the Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets. They have their Bible with them. And it no doubt made its way into the sacred courts of the Magi, the wise men. And they had read, they had studied, they didn't understand everything completely, but they had heard of something going on in the region of Judah. So they head that way. They go that way and they travel for, we don't know how long. The shorter estimates are 40 days, some estimates 90 days. We have no idea how long they traveled. We don't know exactly how far they went, but we know they traveled a long time. And we know that they likely traveled because they were wise men, because they were important men in the courts of wherever they came from. They likely traveled with an entourage, at least some guards traveling along these, these roads. You don't, you don't just send guys who study books by themselves. They're not trained in hand-to-hand combat. They don't know how to defend themselves, so they likely came with a bunch of guys with them. And they came to the city where the king was or where the king was supposed to be. And it's interesting that we're not told that they go directly to Herod. They come to the city, and Herod finds out later. When he heard this in verse 3, Herod hears about the disturbance going on in the city. They come to the city, and if wise men, whatever they looked like, whatever they were dressed up as, and this giant entourage comes with them, and they come into the city, and the first question that they're asking, really the only question they care about, is where is the king of the Jews? Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? That gets back to Herod. He hears about it later. We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. The star signified, in many ancient cultures, ancient writings, it signified royal birth. The birth of a new star, the seeing of a new star signified royal birth. And we're not told exactly what this star is. Some people try to say it was, you know, like a comet or something that kind of went through the sky that one night. Some people want to say it's a a supernova or these two planets coming together. Apparently when planets come together, I don't understand how this works, planets can, can line up behind each other and the way that the sun and stars work, you can actually get this extra bright color. Apparently it's really cool. I've never actually seen this. Um, there's lots of different explanations. But there's a good indicator in verse 9. Look down in verse 9. There's a good indicator that it is supernatural, not natural, that it's not a supernova, that it's not a comet because... The star leads them to Judea. And then they had stopped looking for whatever reason. They got to Jerusalem, assuming that was the natural place for a king to be born. And then we're told in verse 9, when it rose ahead of them, and then it stopped over the place. That is, it's moving. 
It could have been a comet, but comets don't stop, right? Have you ever seen a shooting star? They're pretty cool. You you, you have to kind of get out of the city to see them, but they're always moving. They don't stop. They might disappear out of view, but that doesn't mean they've stopped. They're continually moving. Whatever this is, can I give you my theory of what this is? Yeah? Okay. I'm going to tell you, this has no biblical evidence whatsoever, okay? So this is a little bit of redeemed, sanctified imagination, okay? Borrowing from Luke chapter 2. Remember the shepherds out in the field? The angel shows up, there's just one at first, and then multiple show up, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, to quote the King James Version. The glory, the brightness of the angelic beings around the shepherds shone so bright in front of them and they were terrified. I like to think that on the night, because we are told that we saw it when it rose, and it rose when he was born, when did it appear? And that's what one of the questions Herod gets into. When did it appear? He wants to find out when exactly it appeared. Because that's when Jesus would have been born. I like to think that the star that they saw rising out in the distance were the angels themselves. That when they showed up in Bethlehem, just outside, that that glory, that brightness that shone before the shepherds, and when they ascended and went back into heaven, that when, when, when the wise men looked out over that horizon, they saw the angels ascending back. They saw that star. The star that they saw were actually the angels. Again, let me emphasize, no biblical evidence, okay? I like to think that that's true. And I'm okay if I'm wrong, okay? Like if I, if I get to glory... And the Lord says, no, you're completely wrong. It was just a star, okay? It was just an actual star that I moved around because I can do what I want because I'm Lord of heaven and earth, okay? But that's my fun theory of what they saw. But we're not told. But what we are told is their response. They saw the star and they moved. They saw the star and it brought them joy. It brought them joy because of where it was leading them because they were heading in the direction of a newborn king. It was a call to action. Regardless of what the star was, the star demanded action on the part of the wise men. And so Herod hears about these these wise men and their questions and what they're planning on doing. And verse 3 says, King Herod heard this. He was disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. Herod, history tells us, Herod was both a crafty and a cruel man. Politically, he was pretty good. Politically, he, he kept peace. He tried very hard to keep peace. He tried very hard to, to um, keep the Jewish people happy because he was a king set up by Rome. He was not an heir to the throne. He was Idumean, a region south of Judah. He was not, an actual, he was not actually in line to become king. And so he tried very hard to keep the peace. And we know personally, history tells us that in his later years especially, he was a very paranoid man. He was very twitchy. He didn't trust anybody. History tells us that he actually, in his later years, he killed his favorite wife. He had multiple wives, and he killed his favorite wife and at least two of his sons, maybe three, maybe four, we're not quite sure, all because he thought somebody was out to get him. He was a very paranoid man. And so when he hears that there's a potential king born, King born 
to be king of the Jews. This king, he's very disturbed because he's worried about losing his throne. He doesn't want another king coming in and taking away what is his. And all of Jerusalem is disturbed with him. In some sense, because when, when your leadership has a certain attitude, you kind of take on that attitude. That attitude is kind of put on to you. Un, and when the king is disturbed, you are disturbed too. But in a greater sense, I think it's because all of Jerusalem had seen what this man's paranoia could do. They had seen what this level of disturbedness in his mind was capable of. They were disturbed. The Jewish leadership would have been disturbed because they had all been put in place because of Herod. Herod had claimed to have converted, converted to Judaism, but he didn't really care about Jewish laws. He was setting up chief priests and he was setting up important people all over the place to kind of help himself, just kind of bolster himself. You put the right people around you, then they will defend you to the people, and that's what he had done. And the Jewish leadership is disturbed because, well, if this king's gone, then we're gone too. We're going to lose our position of authority. He's claimed to be a Jew now, but he doesn't really care about Jewish law, and he doesn't really know anything about the Jewish history or the Jewish text, which is why he calls all the chief priests and teachers of the law. He calls all of the scribes. He calls all of the men. He has no idea um, what's going on or what's really being talked about. He didn't know the scriptures, even though he had, com- had claimed to, c- to convert to Judaism. He had, he had no idea. And he calls all of them all the chief priests and all the teachers of the law, he calls all of them because he knows that he's not really liked. He's liked because he's given positions of authority, but he's not really liked because he's not the true king. And you know the Pharisees and the Sadducees? We'll we'll skip ahead a little bit in Matthew. The Pharisees and Sadducees, you know how they don't talk? They don't get along? The Pharisees were, were the teachers of the law. They were the scribes. And the chief priests... Those were the Sadducees. And so he calls all of them. He calls these two parties who don't like him, but they also don't like each other. So why he calls all of them instead of just one? Because then they can't plot against him because they haven't talked to each other. They can't plot to try to trick him to get him out of the throne. He calls all the chief priests, all the teachers of the law, calls them all in there because he doesn't want to be tricked out of his throne. And he asks them a question. When he called all of the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. So he's not an idiot. He had put something together. Because what's the question that the Magi show up asking? Where is the king of the Jews? Where's the one born king of the Jews? And Herod has put this together with, that means Messiah. Christ. And so what we see is even in Herod's mind, for whatever limited understanding he had, he had made the connection that the one born king of the Jews was the promised Messiah. He was the Christ. He didn't understand what all of that meant. But he got that. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law, they answer and they get it right. We sometimes mock, I don't know if mock's the right word, make fun of, belittle, Look down on the chief priests, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law in the New Testament. Jesus just tears them to shreds, doesn't he? All over the place. They're coming to him trying to trick him. They're trying to give him a question he can't answer. They're trying to figure out if Jesus has an explanation for this. And just one after the other, he's just knocking it out of the park, right? They have no response. But they get it right here. 
Verse 5, in Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. They knew the right answer, scripturally speaking. They knew their Old Testament. They had the right answer, but they failed to have the appropriate response. The Magi, with their limited knowledge and understanding of what this star meant and represented, what the king of the Jews was going to be, where he was going to be, with their limited knowledge, they were right away in action. These men, these chief priests and teachers of the law, with all of their Old Testament knowledge, their scriptural knowledge, they didn't have the right response, which shows us head knowledge doesn't always change the heart. That just because you know a lot about the Bible does not mean you're a changed person. Something else, there's another factor involved. The Magi were were eager to not just do something, show up, they were eager to worship, for we have come to worship him. Now, if Herod had been disturbed because in his limited understanding of the Old Testament, one thing you do get from the Old Testament is God and God alone ought to be worshipped. You do not worship a man. And so if his disturbedness came from the fact that these guys showed up and they said, where's the one to be born king of the Jews? And he was all worried because, well, you don't worship man, you only worship God. That's not the case. He's disturbed for all the wrong reasons. And the Magi, for all the right reasons, are eager to worship. The religious leaders with their extensive knowledge show no indication with their knowledge of heart or hand action that their heart hadn't been changed, their heart hadn't been impacted by what they had read, and their hands, their, their, their actions had not, as a result, changed either. They had the right answer, but it didn't move them to do anything. You would think that for all of the studying, all of the praying, all of the seeking God's face, all of the trying to understand what the Old Testament, their scriptures were about, when guys show up and say, we saw the star, the star that was promised to rise, the star that was meant to indicate the birth of this king. Guys, where's he, where's he gonna be born? We saw the star. We just gotta figure out where he is. You would think that the appropriate response would for them to be, let's get on board with this. These guys, you guys don't really know what you're talking about. Let us show you. Let us show you in the scriptures what's being talked about. Let, let's, let's compare notes here. You've got this, we've got this. Okay, let's see if these match up. Ah, in Bethlehem, what they should have done is they should have been the first ones out the door on the way to Bethlehem. The shepherds out in the fields, granted, when an angel shows up and tells you to do something, you might do it. It's a little bit of a different scene. But these guys should have been the first out the door. Herod then calls a meeting. Verse 7, then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. Now, we know his ulterior motives behind all of this. We know why he's doing this. He says, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. We know that's a lie. We know when we read the last half of chapter two that he really has no intention of worshiping the newborn king. He has no intention of offering praise and adoration to the one that was born. We know that he just wants to wipe out the competition. So he finds out the exact time And we pair that with, I believe it's in verse 16, 
Yeah, verse 16 of chapter two, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi because they go home by a different route, he was furious and gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem in its, and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. This is where some people say Jesus must have been around two years old. It's quite possible. But we also know that Herod being a cruel, paranoid man, in all likelihood, he could have found out that this, is ha- this had happened eight months ago. And just to be sure, just to make sure that there's no possible way for this newborn king to slip through the cracks, he just ups the age, right? Well, he might, be, he might only be a year, but let, let's just be sure because maybe they weren't paying attention. Maybe they didn't quite see the star when it actually got up there. Maybe they, maybe they weren't quite aware of what go, was going on and they, they only connected the dots a few weeks or a few months later. Maybe, maybe they waited too long before they started moving. Maybe they lied to me, I don't know. Herod in his paranoia, he says, I'm just gonna wipe out all the baby boys under the age of two. We know that's the reason why he calls this secret meeting. We're not quite sure exactly what, what else was going on, why it had to be secret. Maybe it's because he didn't want Jerusalem to find out. He didn't want the people to know what was going on. Maybe he didn't want the leadership to know what was going on. Either way, he calls a secret meeting because he does not want to lose his throne. He doesn't want to lose his power. And he does not want to submit to the word of the Lord. What God has said is about to take place. What God has said will take place, has taken place, and will continue on through Jesus' ministry. He sends them off to Bethlehem. Apparently, he's convinced them of their lie, of his lie, because um, the wise men go, and Herod doesn't send anybody with him. Like, he doesn't send, like, a bodyguard, or he doesn't send, like, one of his inner courts guys. None of the chief priests and teachers of the law go. He doesn't send anybody. He just sends the wise men off with whoever went with them and came with them. And he sends them off to Bethlehem. And this is where we see the star again. The star that could have disappeared. We're not told. It might have disappeared. Or the wise men getting close to Judea, getting close to Jerusalem, naturally going to where kings were born, they might have just stopped looking. They might have stopped paying attention to where the star actually was. They just went straight for the place where they assumed the king was going to be born. And we're told that this star rose and went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. So again, to ruin more Christmas, it wasn't there at the manger scene, right? It didn't stop over the place until weeks, months, maybe years later when the wise men get here. So all those nativity scenes, the one that we got for Amelia, they're wrong. There wasn't a star over the stable. And in fact, it probably wasn't a stable either. You can see Steve's sermon from two or three years ago and he can ruin that part of Christmas for you. You can go back and listen to that. But the star, it stops over the place, in all likelihood, Bethlehem, just Bethlehem itself. It stops over that place where Jesus was. And they enter the house. How did they find the house? Some want to say it stopped right over the house. We're not told, told it stopped over the house. It stopped over the place, the greater place. How do they find the house? Well, the shepherds, when they show up to find Jesus on the night of his birth, they're pretty excited. They live in that area, that region. And Bethlehem is not a massive town. 
There's not thousands and thousands and thousands of people living there. Word spreads pretty quickly. These shepherds leave their sheep out in the fields in the middle of the night and they rush into the city. We're not told how many shepherds either. They rush in and they find this baby, this newborn king, lying in a manger. And they are excited and worship because what they were told from the angels is proven to be true. That story spreads. That's hard to keep to yourself, right? Guys, guess what? We were out watching our sheep, you know, as normal shepherds do. And all of a sudden, bright light. You remember when you were asleep that night and there was that bright light that seemed to appear just out over the hills? You guys have no explanation of what that is. We were there. We saw that. And we followed what we were told to do. We went to the manger scene and we saw. In all likelihood, the Magi show up. They're in Bethlehem. And if in Jerusalem, word spread pretty quickly, it's gonna spread even quicker that these wise men, these Magi have shown up. And they are looking for a child that was born. A special child. One that was promised to be born king of the Jews. They find the house. And when they see the star and they come to the house, they are overjoyed. They are thrilled. They are ecstatic. Why? Because of where it's leading them. Because the king of the Jews, the king, the promised king, he's just on the other side of that door. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary and they bowed down and they worshipped him. They came to Bethlehem, which was given its significance previously because it was David's city. Now we're told in verse 6, the significance for Bethlehem is no longer because it was David's city, but because another ruler, a different ruler, who will shepherd my people, the one that will come will care for, lead, instruct, This ruler, this king, gives Bethlehem its significance now. And they worship. Most scholars say that the term worshipped here, in all all likelihood, just just means to pay homage to. Not necessarily worship in the sense that we talk about worship. And yet in a greater sense, when they bow down and they worship Jesus, they worship more than they could possibly understand. We're not told exactly how much they understood about who the small child was. How exactly he fit into the greater scheme of God's plan. But when face to face with this child, however old that he was, they do not hesitate to bow down and worship. The only appropriate response in the presence of God. They bow down and they worship. And in some sense, their greatest act of worship was not the gifts themselves. It was a recognition of who Jesus was. This one is the king. Did they understand what it meant for him to be the Messiah, the Christ? We're not sure. We're not told. But when they saw the child, they saw Jesus, they said, this is the one. The one that all these sacred writings, the one that all of the Jewish scriptures have been talking about, this is him. And in some sense, the greatest way you and I will ever worship is a recognition of who God is. It's stepping back from yourself and thinking so greatly about yourself and just putting God in front of you and letting God be God. You don't try to explain away. You don't try to understand necessarily everything. You just go, this is the God that I worship, the God that created 
And the greatest way you and I can worship Jesus this Christmas season is a recognition of who he is. Yes, there are other ways. It's not the only way. But I think the greatest way they worshiped that day was simply by saying, this is the king. A recognition of who Jesus was. Their gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, were not told that they had symbolic meanings in behind them. I think it was, was it last week we sang one of the Getty songs that talked about gold representing kingship, frankincense representing deity, myrrh representing his death. That's kind of what tradition has kind of told us that these things represent. We're not told about that specifically. Gold, because it's expensive and kings are arrayed in gold. Frankincense, the the, the incense that was given in offering to to deities. Myrrh, because it was a, a burial herb, incense. It was used in burial practices. Those are nice and and maybe they're true, but we're not told in this context. What we are told is that these wise men, these magi from the east with all of their wealth, bringing the best of the best, they give them to this small child. And what happened in, in the ancient Near East is gifts were brought not from the king to the lesser, but from the lesser to the greater. The subjects brought gifts to the king. And in their act, again, their act in and of itself is a recognition that this child, not understanding everything, this child is greater than who we are. The gifts were expensive and in all likelihood would have financed the family's flight to Egypt. Right after, in verses 13 through 18, we, we're told that Joseph gets another dream and they have to run, they have to flee because Herod's in a, a mad, delirious fury about these wise men tricking them. And these, these gifts, in all likelihood, being expensive, would have helped this poor family because they're not rich. We're told in, in Luke that they're, they're so poor that they can't even afford a lamb at the purification process, the purification rite for Jesus. They can't afford a lamb. They just can afford the birds. That's it. And that, that's what you brought when you weren't rich enough to bring a lamb. Mary and Joseph were not in a rich state. How are they going to finance them? How are they going to get from, from Bethlehem to Egypt? And in God's providence, he sends three, three gifts that were in all likelihood more expensive than anything Joseph had ever made in his whole life. And they are able to escape in the very next verse. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. And the story continues on with what happened after that. Well, what do we do with this? There's a lot of different things that people want to pull out of it. A lot of them are true. A lot of them are helpful. Why do we give gifts on Christmas? Because the wise men brought gifts. And we give gifts not because we are really good at giving gifts, but because it's a recognition of the greatest gift that has ever been given, and it's Jesus Christ himself. That's true. Maybe you could even work in there a tithing sermon. These guys brought their best and they gave it to Jesus and you should bring your best and give it to Jesus. That's stretching it a little bit, right? The biggest point that I think we get out of this, and it's nothing new, and it's woven into chapter one, chapter two, and it's woven in at the very end of the book of Matthew. It's really Matthew's whole theme. Jesus is king. 
You've heard that before. But time and time again, I think we need to be reminded. Matthew started in his first chapter by making a connection with David. This is the king that was promised long ago to David, the one that who would come and who would sit on the throne forever and ever. We have a little book that Amelia has here with her today. And it's talking about Jesus being a new king, a redeeming king, a rescuing king, a forever king, one who will sit on the throne forever and ever. And we're told that he's king of the Jews. And I actually, I I think I misspoke earlier in the sermon. Don't go back and try to find it. I said the phrase, born to be king of the Jews. That's not what's said in here. We're told that he is born king of the Jews. Not one day. Not possibly, potentially, if things work out properly. He is king right at that moment of his birth. He is king of the Jews. He is king when Herod tries to kill all those baby boys and succeeds in many different ways. He is king before the Magi get there. He is king when the shepherds get there. He is king. And at the end of Matthew, we see the crucifixion of Jesus. And what is posted above his head? King of the Jews. This baby boy is king. And the proper response, out of all the different responses we get in this chapter, all the different responses, we have Herod in his frustration, delusion, paranoia, disturbedness. His reaction is anger. The chief priests and the teachers of the law, their reaction is apathy. They just don't seem to care. The proper response is the response of the Magi. These wise men, with their very limited knowledge, they come before the King of kings and Lord of lords, and they simply bow down and worship. So this Christmas season, for all the plans that have gone wrong, for all the things that aren't normal, for all of the times that we thought we were going to have that we don't, the most important thing, the most important time that you can spend this Christmas season is worshiping the newborn king, who he is right now, ruling and reigning on high. He was born king, he died king, he was risen as king, and he reigns as king right now. Have you submitted? Have you bowed the knee willingly to that king? Not because he's a tyrant, not because he wants to push you down and belittle you, but because he is our savior, because he brings peace between God and man because of what he has done on that cross. Have you bowed to the king? You seen the Lord of the Rings movies? In the last movie, there's Aragorn being crowned king. He's really saved the day in the third. If you haven't seen it by now, sorry for the spoilers, but it's been out like 20 years, okay? Like, this one's really on you. Aragorn's being crowned king. He was the rightful king who was off in exile. He was off doing his own thing. He did not take the crown for himself. Somebody else was ruling in his stead. And Aragorn comes in and he leads the people in the defeat of evil, defending the city, defending basically the whole world, country, whatever you want to call it. He leads the people and he is crowned king. He was king before he was crowned. That was his right. That's who he was He was crowned king after he had displayed his power and his presence and displayed who he was 
And when all of those people in that last scene, they bowed down to King Aragorn, newly crowned King Aragorn, they did not bow down before a, a person who they thought was going to try to rip them off, who was going to try to take advantage of them, or was going to turn them into slaves because he served them in his action. He came as a lowly servant wanting to just serve the people and when they bow down they knew they were bowing down to their savior i don't know how much J.R.R. tolkien knew he was feeding into that but that's who we bow down and worship this christmas season not a tyrant not somebody who comes to take advantage of you or belittle you we bow down before our savior the king the one who has come to make all things right between you and god that is our king and we are called to worship him. Will you do that this Christmas season? Our Christmas season's a mess. But Jesus is still on his throne. Let's worship him. Worship team, will you come up and lead us in our closing song?